Let us pray. O Lord, our Father, our great God in heaven above, you are good and gracious, showing mercy to a thousand generations. You load up your people with benefits. You give us rest. You forgive our sins. You promise us peace and joy. You are a great God and greatly to be feared. We bless you, O Lord, for you renew our strength like the eagles. You work righteousness and justice for us. You are slow to anger, abounding in mercy and love. Show your mercy to us today. Proclaim mercy and grace and peace to us through your word. In your mercy, give us your wisdom. Give us your comfort. Show us mercy at your table, feeding us your own heavenly food, showing us your hospitality, and send us out from here, O Lord, as ambassadors of your mercy, the mercy that characterizes your kingdom. For we know it is always your property to have mercy. O Lord, our Father, this is our praise. This is our prayer. In the name of your Son and in the strength of your Spirit. Amen. I also want to read from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 31, and going through chapter 5, verse 2. Here again, God's word. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Many of you, I'm sure, remember the story from a few years ago when a crazed racist killer named Dylan Roof uh, broke into a church in Charleston during a prayer meeting and killed nine black men and women. Uh, It was truly tragic and rightfully caught the nation's attention. Uh, But one of the most amazing things to come out of that horrendous event was at Ruth's trial when one by one uh, the family members of the slain victims, who were members of the church as well, uh, came forward and looked Ruth in the eye and said, I forgive you. Just an amazing event where forgiveness was granted to, uh, to a murderous racist. Uh, One reporter who was in the courtroom uh, sent out a tweet afterwards. In his tweet, he said, I am a non-Christian, but I must say, this is a remarkable advertisement for Christianity. And indeed it is. There is nothing quite like the forgiveness of God's people. And if you were to survey the history of the church, the history of God's people, you will find all across the centuries God's people offering forgiveness in excruciatingly painful circumstances to those who have hurt them in terrible, terrible ways. The practice of forgiveness is one of the central features of the Christian faith. Other religions may have some kind of teaching on forgiveness, but the biblical doctrine of forgiveness is utterly and totally unique. It truly sets the Christian faith apart. But we know that this forgiveness is not easy. 
when it comes to forgiveness, it truly is easier said than done, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, everyone thinks forgiveness is beautiful until they have something to forgive. And then it gets really tough, really hard, even really ugly. So what enables us as Christians to forgive? Uh, the Bible's teaching on forgiveness is vast, and frankly, it's complex. It's way too complex to cover, certainly in one sermon. But I do want to capture for you this morning a few, I think, very relevant perspectives on forgiveness from the text that we have read this morning. So I want to talk about three perspectives on forgiveness. First, forgiveness and being forgiven. So you can think of that as forgiveness and the gospel. First, forgiveness and being forgiven. Second, forgiveness and community. And then third, forgiveness and power. Let's start with forgiveness and being forgiven. Why do Christians forgive? First and foremost, we forgive because we are forgiven. We are forgiving because we have been forgiven. None of us is so good that we don't need forgiveness. And none of us is so bad that he can't receive forgiveness. Our God is a forgiving God. He identifies himself this way as the God who forgives sins, who pardons iniquities. God forgives you all your sins. You hear me proclaim that and declare that every Lord's Day in our service. And you read it in your Bible and we sing about it. Forgiveness. God is a forgiving God. All who trust in Christ have their sins forgiven. All who repent of their sin are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. This is truly one of the most beautiful truths and most powerful promises of the gospel. In Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I will remember your sins no more. What a beautiful summary. God blots out our transgressions. He remembers our sins no more. Those sins you've committed that you can't forget, God says, I remember them no more. That's good news. And that good news makes us strong. It makes us courageous. In Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, uh, there's a line that says, conscience makes cowards of us all. And this is true. Conscience makes cowards of us all. If we have an unforgiven conscience burdened with guilt, guilty people are weak. Guilty people are cowards. But when God has cleansed your conscience, when God has taken the guilt away, when your conscience is free, when you know you've been forgiven, now you can live free. You can live in a, a strong and courageous life. But one thing we see again and again in Scripture is that God's gift of forgiveness puts a demand on us. There are no privileges given without corresponding responsibilities, and so it is here. The demand, to, the fact that we have been forgiven carries with it a demand that we forgive others. We read this in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. He even goes on to say, be imitators of God. And this is really the outflow, this forgiveness. This is one of the ways we imitate God. We look like God. We mimic God. We copy God when we forgive others the same way God has forgiven us. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, he's saying to us, you are forgiven, now forgive. You are forgiven, now forgive others in the same way. You have been freely and graciously forgiven, now forgive others freely and graciously as well. There's a familiar parable that uh, Jesus gives in Matthew 18, where you have a servant who owes a, a huge sum of money to his king. He owes this massive debt to his king, but the king forgives his debt. The king releases him from his debt. The king just absorbs that 
those unpaid debts, and sets the man free. But then this man who's been forgiven his great debt finds a man on the street corner who owes him a tiny sum, and he grabs this man by the scruff of the neck and shakes him and says, you must pay me and pay me now. When the king hears about this, that the man he had forgiven the debt to does not forgive another who owes him actually a much smaller sum, what does the king do? He revokes his forgiveness. And Jesus uses that parable to teach. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Receiving forgiveness and granting forgiveness go together. You cannot receive God's forgiveness without extending that forgiveness to others. Extending that forgiveness to others is proof that you are forgiven. Jesus summarizes this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, if you forgive men their trespasses against you, your Father will also forgive you. And if you do not forgive men their trespasses against you, neither will your Father forgive you. There it is, very plain. It's, it's in black and white, or it's in red and white. Have you got a red letter edition? Right there in Matthew 6, Jesus makes it plain. Forgiven people forgive. There's no other way. If we have been forgiven, we must forgive. Because we Christians know forgiveness, because we are the most forgiven people in the world, we should be the most forgiving. We should be the most gracious and compassionate people in the world because God has shown us such extraordinary grace and compassion. Now, don't misunderstand this teaching. It's not uh, as if granting forgiveness to others earns God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is never something that can be earned. But Scripture shows us again and again, there's a relationship here, a relationship between receiving God's forgiveness and granting others forgiveness. The logic is simple. If you are, if you are a forgiven sinner, how can you refuse to forgive other sinners? If God has canceled your debts, how can you not cancel the debts of others? If God has forgiven you your massive debt against Him, and you do have a massive debt against Him, how can you not forgive the much smaller debts others have to you? The more you come to see your own sin, the magnitude of your sin, and how God has forgiven you, the easier it becomes for you to forgive others. The more you see the greatness of your own sin, the ease and how God has forgiven you, the easier it becomes to forgive others their sins against you. The more you rejoice in your own forgiveness, the quicker you'll be to forgive others who sin against you. Scripture shows us this again and again. Treat others the way you want God to treat you. Treat the sins of others against you the way you want God to treat your sins against Him. The promise of God's forgiveness is a beautiful thing because it allows you to be honest about your sin. You confess your sin, as we say in our liturgy each Lord's Day, in the sure confidence that God is faithful and just and will forgive you. You can be honest about your sin now because you know you won't be destroyed for your sin. You can tell the truth about your sin without fear of getting crushed. Because you've tasted God's mercy. You're confident of His promise of mercy in Christ. But even then, even knowing this, it can still be hard for us to come clean and confess our sins because we're prideful. We have a, we have a tendency to downplay and excuse our own sins and then to magnify the sins of others against us. Most of us live with a double standard. We go easy on ourselves and hard on others. We excuse our own sins. We justify our own sins. They're not that big a deal. We minimize them. And then we magnify the sins of others as if they had no excuses for what they've done. 
But the thing is, excuses don't cover sins. Only the blood of Christ can cover sin. Don't excuse sin. Confess it. C.S. Lewis points out that the excuses we make for ourselves are really pretty flimsy if you look at them, and everybody who sinned against us could make very similar excuses. If you justify yourself, you should justify others. But we know we can't do that. When we realize how God has forgiven us, we see how we must forgive others in the same way. When you are sinned against, remember how you have sinned against God. When it is hard for you to forgive, remember what it cost God. Remember what God paid to forgive your sins. The cross. The cross was the price of your forgiveness. The precious blood of the eternal Son of God. That's the price. That's the cost God paid for your forgiveness. Our debts to God are canceled because God paid them for us to himself on the cross. That's what the cross is all about. God absorbing the cost of our sin against him. If our sins are forgiven, they are canceled. The debts are canceled. The one owed the debt has absorbed the cost. That's the pain of forgiveness to God. And so when you say, you know, I'd like to forgive, but it's really painful, it's really hard. Well, yes, forgiveness is always sacrificial. There's always a sacrifice involved if forgiveness is going to be granted. But God has paid that price to forgive you. Now you are called to pay that price to forgive others, to absorb that cost, to absorb those debts. So the practice of forgiveness is undergirded by the gospel. The Christian practice of forgiveness flows out of the gospel. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We are seeking to imitate God's forgiveness when we forgive others. We are forgiven and so we forgive. But what is, how does this work out practically? What about forgiveness and community? How does forgiveness work practically speaking? We can see here we're motivated to forgive because we have been forgiven. But practically, how does it happen in our daily lives? It's so important to see forgiveness is the key to healthy relationships. Forgiveness is the key to restored relationships. Forgiveness is the grease that, 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 that it greases the tracks of daily life to keep our relationships moving. You have to answer malice with mercy. And if you don't, your relationships will disintegrate in the acid of bitterness. Because what happens when you don't forgive, when you hold a grudge? You grow bitter over time. What happens in a relationship where forgiveness is not routinely practiced? Where it's not just a part of everyday life? Think about a marriage. This is probably the most common example. Think about a marriage. A husband and wife are going to sin against one another. That's inevitable. So what has to happen? They don't confess their sins to one another and forgive one another. Those sins start to pile up. Sins are like trash. So imagine a house where no one ever takes the trash out. Pretty soon the whole house is filled with trash and it becomes unlivable. And pretty soon you start about, you start to think about leaving, just walking away or maybe burning the place down because it's just impossible to live in a house filled with garbage. Most problems in marriage can be solved by taking the trash out, by taking the garbage out. It's really that simple. Confess it and forgive it. Seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness. That's taking out the trash. It's cleaning the place up. Every relationship is this way. It's not just marriage. 
Every relationship works this way. Backlogs of unconfessed sin will clog up your relationship and ultimately kill your relationship. If you are keeping scrapbooks of all the wrongs that have been done against you and you like to pull those scrapbooks out every now and then and just kind of glance back through them and sort of think back on all the ways that people have wronged you, your relationships are going to wither. They just are. Relationships cannot survive unconfessed sin, unforgiven sin. Now, the problem, someone will say, is, well, I'm just too hurt by the other person's sin to forgive. I can't get over it. And there are a lot of questions here to deal with. I mean, these are the kind of questions I can't go into in as much detail as I would like, but these are the kind of questions that arise. How does forgiveness relate to justice and to consequences for sin? How does forgiveness relate to repentance? Can you really forgive someone if they don't repent? How does forgiveness relate to healing? Does forgiving the person help me heal? So I need to go ahead and forgive them as part of the healing process? Or do I wait until I'm healed and then grant forgiveness then when I'm really over it? These are hard questions in a lot of ways, but but think about some different dimensions here. Certainly forgiveness should never be at the expense of justice. The cross teaches us that. God does not just sweep our sin under the rug. God dealt with our sin. God's forgiveness is just because our sins were paid for by the suffering of his son on the cross. Forgiveness does not negate the demands of justice. Romans 3 describes God as the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Justice does not, is not canceled out by forgiveness. When someone has sinned against you and you forgive them, That does not eliminate every consequence of the sin. It may eliminate some consequences. It's not going to eliminate all consequences. If you steal from me, I can forgive you and still expect restitution, still expect you to pay me back. If my child sins against me, I can forgive him but still discipline him. Even for his own good, I can discipline him. If I murder someone, the victim's family can forgive me but still expect the state to execute me Indeed, the state is an agent of God's just vengeance when it does so. Forgiveness does not mean a relationship is restored to exactly what it was before the sin. If you come to my house and you steal money out of my wallet and I catch you and you confess it, I can forgive you for what you've done, but next time you come to my house, I'm probably going to hide my wallet because I don't trust you. Forgiveness does not mean I have to trust you the way I did before. This is why when somebody in a leadership position sins, they can they can be forgiven and still not have their leadership position restored because forgiveness does not necessarily mean things go back to the way they were. Forgiveness is an event, but restoring trust is usually a process. What about this? Do I have to confess? Do I have to forgive someone who won't confess their sin? Do I have to forgive someone who won't repent of their sin? Well, I think the answer here is yes and no. Uh, Scripture tells us, the book of Proverbs, and it's repeated in the New Testament, Scripture says love covers a multitude of sins. Not all sins, but a lot of them can simply be covered. You just toss the blanket of love over the sin and then move on. And so even if the other person never acknowledges their fault, maybe they don't even know that they sinned against me, 
I can cover that with love. I can cover that with a blanket of love. We don't want to confront every little thing someone does against us. If we did that, we'd be confronting one another constantly and we wouldn't get anything else done. No, let love cover a multitude of sins. Cut one another some slack. But other more significant sins have to be dealt with more openly and more directly. We wouldn't say to a woman whose husband has committed adultery, we'll just let love cover that sin. Let love cover the multitude of sins involved in that. No, there's got to be more to the restoration process than just that. Not all sins are the same. More serious sin, with more serious sin, there has to be a confession of that sin and repentance before you can fully grant forgiveness and be reconciled. The sin is big enough to disrupt the relationship, and it takes both parties to restore the relationship. And in this sense, forgiveness is conditional. Think about it. Paul says we are to forgive as God forgives. Does God forgive everyone's sins? Ultimately, no. He only forgives the sins of those who repent. So if God's forgiveness is conditional in some way and our forgiveness is modeled on God's forgiveness, our forgiveness also will have an element of conditionality. This is what I think Jesus is teaching, at least in part, in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you and says, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus is saying there's no limit to your forgiveness. You you forgive and you keep on forgiving. You make forgiveness routine. You make it a way of life. And you forgive those who repent. Jesus is insisting that we forgive those who sin against us. But he is connecting our forgiveness to their repentance. If they want to be forgiven and if they want to be in a restored relationship with us, they need to repent. See, full forgiveness is never just a private feeling in the heart of the one sinned against. No, it's a public transaction between the offender and the offended. There's got to be this transaction that takes place. There is confession of the sin committed, and then there is forgiveness for the sin that has been committed. I confess my sin against you to you, and then you express your forgiveness to me for that sin. That's what it looks like. That's what full forgiveness and reconciliation look like. Now, that raises another question. What if the person doesn't repent? Maybe this person's not even a Christian, so they've never repented of anything in their whole life. Well, here I think the uh, advice of Oscar Wilde kicks in. Uh, Oscar Wilde said, Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Uh, I think Wilde has a point. Uh, But I think we can also be a little more precise. I think we can break this down a little bit more. I would put it this way. You should always be willing to forgive someone who has wronged you. And because you are willing to forgive them, that means you're not going to harbor bitterness or plot revenge. You're not thinking of ways to take vengeance into your own hands. You're going to leave vengeance to God because you know he can handle it much better than you can. You're going to uproot any bitterness that might be uh, taking seed in your life. You should always be ready to forgive even the unrepentant. You should be eager to forgive. You should forgive as much as it depends upon you. You should be reconciled as much as it depends upon you. You should be at peace as much as it depends upon you. You should constantly offer forgiveness. You should be disposed to forgive. You should have a forgiving spirit. 
but to fully grant forgiveness and to be reconciled. Well, that takes two. You can't do that alone. You can't do that by yourself. You can't uh, grant forgiveness to someone who refuses to accept it. Think about it this way. You could hand someone a, a, a gift, a gift-wrapped box that has a tag on it, to the one who sinned against me. And inside of that box is the gift of full and free forgiveness. That's inside the package. But what do they have to do with it? They have to actually receive that gift, take it into their hands, and tear it open. And sometimes people are not going to do that because doing so is going to mean admitting that they have sinned. Admitting that they have wronged you in some kind of way. So you can offer the gift with their name on it to the one who has offended me with a gift of of free forgiveness inside the box. But sometimes the person is just not going to take it. They're not going to open that box up. And in those cases, no, there is not going to be full forgiveness. There will not be full reconciliation. Now, there are some Christians who will reject this teaching on forgiveness, as I've just expressed it, and they will say, well, really, the Christian thing to do is to forgive any and every sin without repentance. And if you're really godly, you're just going to act like it never happened. That would be the godliest thing to do, is, is just you should just forgive. And you shouldn't need confession or repentance. I don't think that's healthy. I'm not convinced that's right. Uh, imagine telling an abuse victim this, that, hey, look, you just need to forgive your abuser, and even though your abuser won't confess it and won't repent of it, you just need to forgive him, and if you don't, well, now you're the one who's in the wrong. You see how problematic that is? That's cruel to the one who has suffered. You could tell the abuse victim, you need to work towards being willing to forgive. You need to have a spirit of forgiveness. But to demand that they forgive the unrepentant, that they be reconciled to the unrepentant, that they act as if it never happened, even though the person's unrepentant, that's not something God asks of us. Indeed, it's not something God does himself. There are stages and degrees of forgiveness, perhaps, but full forgiveness, again, is a transaction between the sinner and the one sinned against. And in order for that transaction to be complete, the sinner has to confess his sin and repent. And the one sinned against has to grant forgiveness and express forgiveness for that sin. Now, most often in daily life, both parties are at fault. Both parties have a lot of confessing to do and both parties have a lot of forgiving to do. That's just the way it is. But you can think of it this way. When you've been sinned against, do I forgive somebody even if they're not repentant? The offer and attitude of forgiveness is unconditional. The granting and experiencing of forgiveness is conditional. You cannot have full reconciliation with an unrepentant person. That's just how it is. God's not reconciled to the unrepentant. And we have to recognize that's not going to happen in our lives either. Again, there's no place for bitterness here. You guard yourself against bitterness. You stand ready to forgive. You're like the father of the prodigal son out there waiting, hoping there will be repentance, hoping that the prodigal who sinned against you will come home. But there can't be full reconciliation without repentance. And that's because of what forgiveness is. See, forgiveness is really the promise of a healed relationship. Forgiveness is the promise of an ongoing commitment to this relationship. When I say, I forgive you, you know, when, when, when you say this to somebody, when you say to somebody, I forgive you, you're really saying, I am committed to healing this relationship. I am committed to being restored to you. It's not that I will simply forget what happened. That's not really even possible. But you're saying, when you say, I forgive you, you're saying, I will remember the past in a new way, in a different way. 
So I don't hold this against you. I'm committed to being restored and reconciled to you. And finally, that brings us to uh, the last issue I want to talk about, forgiveness and power. Why is it not just hard to forgive, but why is it that sometimes we simply don't want to forgive? Why do some people withhold forgiveness even when the one who has sinned against them is repentant? Why do some people simply not want to forgive? Why would you not want to forgive? The reality is some people like being a victim. They like being a victim of other people's sins. They enjoy identifying as victims. When we have been sinned against, we are victims. And there is great power in victimhood, especially in our culture today, which tends to glorify victims, so much so that some people will find their whole identity in being a victim. When you are a victim, victimhood can easily become the core of your identity. And you can start to use that victimhood as an excuse for yourself, an excuse for your own failures, an excuse for your own inaction, an excuse for your own sin. Hey, I'm a victim. I was hurt in this way, so now I can do whatever I want. When you are a victim, you can hold it over the other person's head and use their sins as a weapon against them. You can use the failures of others against them. You can start to feel superior to them. You can start to feel entitled, like you are owed something special because you are a victim. Victimhood, especially in our culture today, gets weaponized. And if anyone questions the victim, if anybody questions the victim's victimhood, well, then that person has just become an oppressor. This is why we have a society of trigger warnings and safe spaces and microaggressions. A society where people are so easily offended. It's because being offended now is a source of status and power. This, we need to understand, is a false gospel. A false gospel of justification by victimization. And it's very much at work in our culture. Victimhood might feel good for a while. It might feel empowering in the moment. But we need to understand it is destructive in the long run. What's so ironic about this victim culture so prevalent in our day is that victim culture, victimhood culture, has actually emerged out of the wealthiest and most prestigious universities in America. As one professor has put it, witnessing this, he says, the students most obsessed with their own oppression are some of the most privileged and pampered individuals in the world. Now, there are real victims, of course. And victims of real crime do need real sympathy and real support. They need every bit of love and support we can give them, absolutely. And we should never blame victims for what they've suffered. That just doubles their victimization. Humanity, including the church, has a long history of blaming the victim. And one of the reasons why we like to blame the victim is we kind of see it as a way of protecting ourselves. If the victim is to blame for the bad thing that happened to him, well, then maybe the world really is not as bad as it seems. It's not as evil as it seems. And the world really is a a somewhat predictable place. And so I don't have to worry about that happening to me. If we blame the victim, we can make the world seem like a safer and more predictable place. But victim blaming and victim shaming, again, just hurts those who are already hurting. It just doubles their victimization. So we should show love and support to those who really are victims. But victims also need to know this. Identifying as a victim, 
making it the center of who you are, the center of your identity, is actually a form of bondage over time. And as long as you identify as a victim, you are going to be kept in bondage to your oppressor, to the one who has sinned against you, until you finally forgive. And then you can start to move forward in freedom. Our culture tells us there is power in victimhood. And in a certain sense, that's true. But what God's word really shows us is the true power is found in forgiveness. Long before the microaggression movement began, uh, theologian Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, if we allow every injury, every reproach, every spiteful and unjust deed to disturb our calm and peace, our minds will ever be in tumult and we will never have joy or possess ourselves. And Edwards is exactly right. As long as you find yourself continually offended, as long as you think of yourself as a perpetual victim, peace and joy will be impossible for you. You'll have no calmness, no rest or peace in your soul. You'll be in constant tumult. If you want joy and peace, you have to learn to practice forgiveness. Forgiveness is where real power is found. To forgive is to rise above victimhood. To forgive is to say, I am a victim, of course, but I will not see myself as a victim any longer. Forgiveness moves you from being a victim to being a victor. To forgive is to condemn what has been done to you. But it's to say, I will not be enslaved by it any longer. To forgive is to say, I cannot change what happened to me in the past, but I can control how I live in the future. To forgive is to say, I will not be defined by the sins committed against me. I will define myself by what God's word says about me. It's so interesting to me, you know, when you, when you study periods of, of church history, when there has been really intense persecution of the church, like in the the early Christians in the Roman Empire where they were constantly being persecuted, or Protestants who were living in Catholic lands during the Reformation, or even Christians today in Muslim territories who are often ruthlessly persecuted. One of the most striking things about their testimonies, you see this consistently, is they refuse to define themselves as victims. You know, Tertullian was famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He said to the persecutors of the church, he said, the faster you, you, the more you mow us down, the faster we grow. He did not tell Christians to have a pity party and to feel, you know, we should feel sorry for ourselves because we're victims of this terrible persecution. He said, no, through our suffering, we conquer. The church will suffer and serve her way to victory. Do not seek out the role of victim. Reject the role of victim whenever possible, as much as possible. See, when you identify as a victim, it makes you more helpless than you really are. And it lets other people define who you are and how you feel and what you do. It's paralyzing to think of yourself as a perpetual victim. We read from Genesis 50, the conclusion of the Joseph story this morning. If ever there was someone who could have identified as a victim, it was certainly Joseph. He was sold by his envious brothers into slavery who then lied to their father and said he had been killed by a wild animal. Once in slavery, he was falsely accused of abuse by his master's wife and sent to prison. In prison, he was abandoned by about the only friend 
he had and left to languish there. Joseph was a victim many times over, victimized again and again by the sins of others. But what did he do? Did he make that his identity? No, he rose above his circumstances. He rose above the sins committed against him by refusing to think of himself as a victim. He claimed power by moving from being a victim to being a forgiver. One who has been victimized to one who forgives. Every time it seemed Joseph hit rock bottom because of the way others had sinned against him, things got worse. He sunk even lower. He suffered about as much as a man can suffer. And he was innocent through it all, faithful through it all. But how does the story end? The story ends with Joseph quite literally on top of the world. He has become Pharaoh's right-hand man in the Egyptian empire, in charge of Egypt's food supply, feeding the world bread from his own storehouse in a time of famine. He becomes the savior of the world. And indeed, he becomes the savior of his brothers who come to him for food. He spares them and saves them as well. Joseph is the persecuted son who suffers at the hands of his brethren, the innocent victim who forgives and becomes the savior of the world. Just as the greater Joseph, as he was suffering on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them. That's the cry of Joseph. Father, forgive them. Joseph was able to see all his victimization as part of God's wise plan for his life, for his good, for the good of all. He could say to his brothers, God did this. He says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Note what he does here. He does not excuse what his brothers did. He does not downplay it as though it weren't really evil. But he sees that their intention is not the whole story. He forgave them because he could see that his sufferings were not pointless. He saw God's hand behind the sins of others against him. He saw God's wise design in the trials of his life. And so think about it. If Joseph had not been sold into slavery, if he had not been falsely accused of rape, if he had not gone to prison and been left there to languish, what would have happened? The whole world would have perished. The whole world would have starved. Again, Joseph doesn't excuse his brothers. He says, what you did to me was evil. He calls sin, sin. Forgiveness does not mean watering down or diluting the evilness of evil. But Joseph forgives their sin because he can see that God's plan includes human evil in his life happening for good purposes. And this is how we need to think of our own lives. If we're going to move from being victims to victors, if we're going to be, if we're going to move from being victim, from, from being victims to being forgivers, we have to learn to think of our lives as a story. Think of your life as a story authored by God himself. Oh yes, some of the chapters in the story bring dark threads into the plot. Bad things are going to happen to you. People are going to sin against you. But in the end, God takes all of those threads and he weaves them together into a beautiful tapestry. And so no matter what's happened to you, Joseph shows you the way forward. Look for the divine design behind your trials. Move towards forgiveness and you will find God giving you power. 
When you forgive, you will move from being a victim to being a victor. And that's what God wants for each of us. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word and your wisdom that you give to us through your word. And I pray that even as you have forgiven us our great sins, I pray that you would help us in turn to forgive others. That we might not, that we might not see ourselves simply as victims of what others have done to us, but that we might become victors through defining ourselves by the gospel, by what Christ has done for us, by our union with Christ. And we might become victors by forgiving those who have wronged us. And we might rise above the circumstances and sins of others. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's God's royal priesthood. Let us stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your great works, full of splendor and majesty, for your great forgiveness to us all. Your gracious and merciful Father, providing for those who fear you and remembering your covenant forever. The works of your hand, O Lord, are faithful and just. You, Father, are our joy in times of peace, our only help in days of trouble, and our one sufficiency when life shall end. Help us to see how good your will is in all things. And even when we don't understand it, teach us to be pleased with it, Father. Your ways are beyond our understanding, yet we know that they are always good, always right, and always best. Father, we thank you for Birmingham and surrounding cities in which we live. You have planted us in them, Father, to be salt and light, and we pray that you would find us faithful in our task. We pray for the civic leaders, including our newly elected officials in Birmingham, Vestavia Hills, Homewood, Mountain Brook, Hoover, Pelham, Alabaster, Moody, Gardendale, Jefferson County, Shelby County, and St. Clair County. We pray, Father, that they would lead and serve in integrity and the fear of you, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. We pray for our police and our firefighters that you would keep them safe also. We pray for the other churches in our area, particularly Cahaba Heights Baptist, Cahaba Heights United Methodist, St. Stephen's Episcopal, Mountain Brook Community Church, Philadelphia Baptist, Cahaba Park Presbyterian, St. John Episcopal, Cahaba Heights Church of Christ, and Christ Church, that we would be united in spirit and purpose, living faithfully to your commandments and bringing the good news of Christ to our communities. We thank you for ministers in these churches as they labor for our spiritual health. We ask, Father, for your hand to be upon our local schools and colleges, that you would fill them with administrators and teachers who fear you and recognize that only by acknowledging the creator of the universe can true knowledge be found. We thank you for our hospitals, physicians, nurses, and technicians who care for our physical health and give us comfort as we age. May we not forget how greatly you bless us through their care, and we ask for your blessings upon them. We thank you for the businesses within our area that provide employment and provide us employment. May we give our labors to them heartily as unto you, knowing that the work that they provide comes from your gracious hand. Within our own congregation, Father, it is with great joy that we celebrate the birth of John Michael Mosley, child of the covenant. And we lift before you our other expecting moms and their babies and other couples desiring to have children. 
We thank you for Theopolis and how you continue to use this ministry across the world. We ask that you continue to meet its financial needs. Father, we have many within our congregation, our family, our friends who are struggling with illness or mourning the loss of a loved one, and then we lift them before you in prayer now. Father, you have blessed this congregation with many gifts, and as we prepare for the Advent season, we especially thank you for those with musical gifts. May our choirs and musicians glorify you with their work, and may you use the beauty of the good news to edify the saints and to bring your church into your church as those who need to know you. It is for all these things and for anything else that you see that we may need that we pray, thanking you, Father, for your gracious ear to hear our prayers. And now we pray as your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.